You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Episode 162, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. Paul Matthew. He's Assistant Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School. He's also the Legislative Director for the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons, and that's what we're going to talk about today. And it's a really fascinating discussion if you're a physician. This is, I think, really exciting news. If you're someone who's been following the credentialing and licensing aspect of medicine, this is also a really great development for both MDs and DOs. And if you're a patient or someone who needs a doctor, this is also, I think, really good news. This is going to help alleviate physician burnout and make it just a lot easier to see a physician because there'll just be more of them around. We've talked in the past that basically there is the American Board of Medical Specialties. All the different specialty societies are under that umbrella. They have various criteria for passing their boards and to become board certified in whatever the specialty might be, anesthesia, pediatrics, family medicine, internal medicine, etc. But there's been no competition. It's a private organization, but it's the only organization that is recognized by insurance carriers, by hospitals, which makes it effectively a monopoly without any competition. And unfortunately, over time, it has become more expensive, more onerous in their regulatory burdens that it places on physicians to qualify for their certification. It made certification time-limited, which means instead of becoming certified as a neurologist, suddenly you had to pass tests every 10 years, and then now it's every five years. Then it's not just passing tests, it's completing certain projects. And CME requirements, which are oftentimes sold by the specialty societies or the boards themselves. And so you can see from a revenue standpoint, there's every incentive to increase the amount required to maintain your certification. And without any competitive alternatives... A physician is left with no choice. If you want to practice, you have to do this board certification. Well, now there's a new alternative. Actually, it was started in 2014 called the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons. And it's not a board in the sense that they've made up entirely new requirements for becoming certified. 
in a specialty, they actually use the current structure in place, the residencies that are all sanctioned by the American Board of Medical Specialists, but they don't require the recertification process. So they will say that once you've successfully completed the requirements to become board certified in your specialty, you have to maintain a certain level of expertise, but not one that requires the immense regulatory burdens and expense that is required currently through the recertification process. This is going to put tens of thousands of dollars back in physicians' pockets, which can savings can be passed on either to hospital systems who employ those physicians. It's also going to put plenty of hours back into physicians' pockets, you know, so that you can spend time researching actual things that would help you in your practice versus educational materials that provide no benefit to your patients. Also time with your family. And this regulatory burden will be a little bit reduced, which will certainly help with the burnout problem we're having in medicine. If you want to learn about more specifics with this, the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons, you can go to their website, mbpas.org. You can find links to that and other episodes that are related to the discussion we're having today at the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 162. I'd encourage you to head over there, and if you're a physician, seriously consider becoming board certified by the MBPS. And then the next step, of course, is working on hospitals and insurance companies to fully accept the NBPS as certification for payments, which will give you more alternatives and options for you in hiring and probably slow down the early retirement in lots of physicians who are just deciding not to go through a 10-year cycle for two years more of working. But without further ado, Dr. Paul Matthew from the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons in a new option for maintaining your certification. Enjoy. Well, I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Paul Matthew. He's the Assistant Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School, also the Director of Legislative Affairs at NBPS, which is the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons. And we're going to talk about the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons. Dr. Matthew, thanks for so much for joining the show. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me, Eric. Well, I'm thrilled to have you on. I've, I mean, NBPS has been around since 2014. I think that's when it first uh, sort of was created in response to ABMS. Why don't you describe to physicians who probably don't really know there's a difference or about the existence of your organization, and then explain to you know, the layperson what exactly we're talking about when it comes to credentialing of physicians and after residency, et cetera? Sure, absolutely. So uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, after medical school, physicians complete what's called residency, which is a position where you go and work kind of as a junior doctor in the specialty that you wish to pursue. Um, this is kind of a cherished role where you work under a physician. You really learn the nuts and bolts of medicine in your particular specialty. Uh, residencies last anywhere from three years, um, you know, and depending on if you go into specialty and subspecialty. I think of my brother who did three years of internal medicine, a year of research, three years of cardiology, and then two years of EP. So the road can be, or electrocardiac physiology. So yeah, that's right. the fancy saying he puts pacemakers in people. And obviously, if you want someone cutting open your chest to put a device in there, you want to know it. You want to make sure they know what they're doing. So uh, anyway, you slice it, pun intended. Um, with all of these different specialties, basically, you would complete residency or fellowship. And then the American Board of Specialties, uh, Medical Specialties, which is a private organization, uh, writes tests. And basically, after your residency or fellowship, you would sit and take that test and you would be board certified. Uh, so, again, these are noble institutions with noble beginnings. Uh, that physicians and actually physician society said, yeah, we, we need to kind of make a benchmark because, again, your experience in a program in New York might be different from an experience in California. Right. And really having kind of an across the board way of saying, you know, what, this guy knows what he's doing. He's completed the requisite training and he's passed this exam. He's good to go. So the ABMS was has always been held in very high regard for these reasons. And again, that's the American Board of Medical Specialties. 
Then some years ago, they said, well, now physicians have to take an exam every 10 years to prove that they're up to date with things. And many of us in practice kind of grumbled about it, but we said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. And then over time, they started to add modules and other things that we had to do that really became very onerous and time consuming. And I'll give you a perfect example. Um, for, you know, a physician would be asked, well, you need to give your colleagues these surveys and then your colleagues need to say what a great doctor you are. You need to give these surveys to your patients so they can say what a great doctor you are. And obviously there's a lot of cherry picking that can go on. And basically you just tick the boxes and you'd go through. Uh, another good example of things that really are a waste of time. I'm a neurologist. I can assure you at no time have I ever taken a brain biopsy from a patient. That's the job of a neurosurgeon. And I've never then taken that biopsy and looked under the microscope to tell you what exactly the pathology is. Uh, but again, that kind of frivolous material was being tested on a lot of these modules and different tests. You hear it everywhere. Um, a pediatric anesthesiologist uh, being asked about technique for adults. Um, it, the list goes on and on and on. So uh, these things were time consuming. They were kind of irrelevant to practice. Um, and physicians already are, are at a premium for time. And many of us, including myself, asked, you know, what's the deal? Uh, why are we being asked to do these unnecessary activities? Uh, they're expensive, they're time consuming, and where's all this money going? And the response is crickets. So myself uh, and people like Paul Tierstein, uh, who's the president of NBPS, uh, we try to be diplomatic. Doctors in general are people who try to find a happy medium and compromise with people. And uh, we both form petitions. His had about 10,000 signatures of some internists. Mine had about 1,500 signatures of neurologists. Uh, again, just asking to modify some of these requirements that were very time-consuming and hazardous evidence. Uh, and the response from the American Board of Medical Specialties was, no, we, we don't really plan on anything. Uh, just do what we tell you and continue to pay your fees. Uh, and at that time, we decided, you know, well, Paul Tierstein decided to start the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons. And shortly thereafter, I, I joined him, as well as some of our colleagues from institutions like Mayo Clinic, Harvard Medical School, Dartmouth, and some of the other higher, higher institutions in this country. Yeah. So essentially what you've done is you created an alternative credentialing board. Uh, and and I think just to go back a little bit to, um, you know, when we talk about the ABMS, there are actually all the different specialty boards. So the residencies you talked about, you know, anesthesia, pediatrics, neurology, et cetera, they all have their own board. And they, they generally do have criteria that the ABMS sets forth for those organizations. Like they have to have a time limited um, resident or uh, certification, which means it's 10 years or five years or whatever the boards decide. They have to have tests. They have to have various components in these sort of modules that you're talking about. How those are set up are vary between the boards, but essentially those basic components are, uh, I guess, standardized amongst these specialty boards. And so the ABMS, although it doesn't set the criteria specifically for the residency, it sets the overall sort of overguiding principles, right? And and both for certification initially and then also for the recertification process. And so I think what has happened, of course, is that there's no one felt there was a need to end this monopoly or to have a sort of alternative choice until recently. Right now, it's become onerous. And I think to personally, I mean, it's easy to say, well, they're asking you to do some stuff. Yeah, it's not important that you know that a pediatric anesthesiologist knows how to do, um, you know, uh, let's say obstetrics, right? But they learned in the residency, they should, there's, it's no harm making them take some CMEs or doing some modules and relearning that information. And I would say, well, that's not true because now they're, you're make forcing them to spend time doing something that they, that is of no clinical relevance to them or their patients. You're taking away the time they could have spent learning about, you know, the things that actually they're doing in the day-to-day -day operations with other job. And so there is a cost to that. 
not only with time, but also money, obviously. And when we have a time when we have high physician suicide rates and, you know, there's, it's twice the rate of the national average for suicide, which is, you know, terrible and burnout. We have a quarter of the, of the people in healthcare leaving healthcare in the last two years. I mean, there's some real problems, right? And so there's, it's not just this, but it's like one of many, many problems, right? Well, it's not just this, but you, you bring up an interesting segue to just this. Um, <laughs> yes. so, so, so in board certification, if you passed your boards before a certain time, you were considered grandfathered and you were given a lifetime certificate. And then if you arbitrarily passed your boards after that, you were subjected to all these requirements. So one group of physicians who are older have kind of an elite status where they don't have to do anything. And then the younger group has to do all of these modules and exams and all these things. And after doing some research, I found that the elite group of grandfathered physicians are 80% white and 70% male. So, you know, this group that although, you know, there was no racial or, or gender-based discrimination intent, the way the contracts panned out, uh, older white men are, are the larger percentage of people among these grandfathered physicians that really have no further requirements, while it's the younger physicians who have a higher percentage of women and higher percentage of underrepresented uh, groups, they're the ones that are being subjected. So this whole system of we're going to force some people to recertify and not others really puts this group at, a, at, a, at an advantage, the grandfathered physicians. And just to be clear, NBPS believes in the importance of an initial certification exam. Right. And that's why we actually require all of our diplomats to uh, be certified initially by the ABMS, because we think a standardized exam, at least initially after you complete your uh, residency or fellowship, is really important. Um, and anything after that really should, everybody should be on the same playing field. As you mentioned, CME or continuing medical education, many of our patients in the public don't realize doctors are required to take anywhere between 25 to 50 hours of continuing medical education courses every year. And again, these are courses that doctors choose which are relevant to their practice or relevant to their specialty. Uh, so again, ongoing learning is kind of built into the process. In addition, with the technology that we have, when I have a question about some obscure diagnosis I see, I instantly pull out my phone or my computer. There are many other programs that we look up on up to date. We discuss cases with colleagues. We attend case conferences. So uh, th there is, I can assure you, there's no physician who just sits stagnant in a pool and does not continue to learn and does not continue to hone their skills over time. Uh, and this myth that people forget what they're doing and that continuous testing is the only way to make sure people are learning is really nonsense. It's almost like it's designed by the testing people, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, the other, the other great point that you brought up is reduce patient access to healthcare. Uh, when you look at the number of not only physicians, but every healthcare professional who kind of is dropping out because of physician burnout or, or medical provider burnout, it's huge. Uh, so when you tell people, hey, listen, you have to do all these requirements, you have to pay all these fees. Not only are you having people retire early, but you're also having people taking time off to complete these requirements. And at a time when there's already such a huge physician shortage, uh, all these onerous recertification requirements are actually negatively impacting patient access to healthcare, as well as cost. Uh, many people don't realize hospitals and large medical systems are now taking on the cost of maintenance of certification. So for a group that has 100 physicians, multiply that by 2,000, and you're talking about you know $200,000, a couple million dollars for large organizations. And again, these are dollars that are coming out of the hospital's general fund, which could be paying for 
uh, COVID pandemic measures, which could be paying for the opioid crisis, all these different places where that money could be better spent is now feeding this organization, which is paying its uh, paying its board members hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, as well as overseas holdings. The ABIM back in 2013 had $6.5 million in overseas accounts. Uh, so these are not organizations that are hurting for money. These are organizations that are paying their employees hand over fist and are looking for more creative accounting ways of redistributing this money. And I think it's uh, it's important to point out too with the MBPS, like you said, it they there's an expectation that you've completed residency in whatever the specialty is. So there's no expectation that you're skirting around uh, training, that you're getting, you know, that you're not really learning anesthesia, you're not really learning pediatrics, that you're just doing a year instead of three years or whatever it might be. You still, the expectation you still do all, complete all the things that everyone else does, but that the, the part after that, the maintain your skills is, you know, is up to you and it's the way it's always been before. When it comes to the MBPS then, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a new board. It's only been around since 2014. I would say probably the last few years, I mean, looking at the numbers, at least at your website, it showed that there are about almost 10,000 physicians now who are um, credentialed. Give me an idea of magnitude, like, uh, you know, 148 hospitals accepted for, uh, for accreditation. What is that in scope of like how many hospitals are, how many physicians are? I mean, how far do you feel like you have to go before you become more mainstream, or at least more recognized by the average physician? So the big issue, and, and this is unfortunately a little bit of a domino effect, uh, physicians would go to their credentialing board. So every hospital has a credentialing board that right. says, you need, to, you need to do these things in order for you to continue practicing medicine within the walls of this hospital. And one of them is to be certified by the American Board of Medical Specialties. So many of these credentialing boards are actually sympathetic and say, yes, ABMS recertification takes up a lot of time, it's expensive, so on and so forth. And we would like to accept the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons. However, the insurance companies actually require us to only contract with the physicians who are board certified with the American Board of Medical Specialties. And I'm happy to tell you that that has changed um, earlier uh, at the end of last year, actually. So there's two organizations. There's URAC and the uh, NCQA. So these are organizations that actually certify the insurance companies. So when insurance companies are saying, what should we look for for physicians when we're doing contracting? They'll say the ABMS. And at the end of last year, they both said, well, actually NBPS is also acceptable. So the fact that these two organizations have made that decision, made it in print, now when hospital credentialers are saying, oh, we're really sorry, we can't accept NBPS because of the insurance companies. Now the physicians can turn and say, actually, no, the insurance companies are recognizing NBPS. So really the big hurdle of accepting NBPS at a hospital level is gone. And I think as that spreads like wildfire, you're going to find more and more facilities that are accepting MBPS. And obviously, if a hospital accepts MBPS, then most of the physicians in that facility will say, well, I mean, if that's a viable option, I'm happy to do so. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, it took that level of advocacy to try to get URAC and NCQA to accept us. Um, and now, you know, people were expecting the cart to go in front of the horse. Now, finally, the horse is in front of the cart. And uh, we can really, well, I expect we're going to see those numbers really, really start to grow. Do you have an idea how many physicians are in the country? I think it's in the, uh, don't quote me. A couple hundred thousand? The, yeah, a couple hundred thousand. Okay. That was, that was estimate. So, so you're probably like one or two percent. Yeah. Yeah. So 10,000 is a tiny fraction. But again, you have to remember, these are the 10,000 who, like me and like Paul Tierstein, were very much interested in this topic, very much 
pro-physician in terms of us kind of determining our own destiny as a profession. And so the, these are really the advocates that believed in the mission and thought it's doable. I can't tell you how many physicians, the, the numbers countless have told me, oh, you know, once it's accepted at my hospital, I'm happy to sign up. I'm like, it, it doesn't really work like that. Right. Yeah. You need the legwork to get it done. It's like saying, oh, sure, I'll, I'll be happy to come over for dinner. Um, just go ahead and order the groceries, even though you don't have any money. Right. It, it doesn't really work like that. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm glad now we're finally in the position we're in with NCQA and URAC. And now with insurance accepting uh, MBPAS as it should, uh, we're going to see a lot more numbers growing. Yeah. And to give people an idea of the magnitude of the difference from a, from a financial standpoint, we're talking about $190, I think, for two years for NBPS. I'm sure the specialty boards vary, uh, but probably with all the components you're purchasing and the, and the actual, I'm guessing it's going to be around five to $10,000 for 10 years circuit. So probably about a thousand, 500 to a $1,000 for a physician uh, with the, uh, with an ABMS certified board instead. So just in terms of fees, we are, um, I think, around 73% cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting. There was a uh, article, I believe it was in JAMA, uh, that actually analyzed uh, how much physicians spend in terms of not only test prep, but travel, um, you know, all the uh, time away from work, not seeing patients. And for an internist, it was in the range of about $16,000 yeah. over a 10-year cycle. And for a hematologist oncologist, it was forty thousand dollars so if you can wrap your head around that complying with moc costed that much money for a subspecialist to comply yeah and and to your point earlier that when you have these large hospitals now that a lot of physicians are owned by their i shouldn't say owned (laughs) they're employed by hospital systems right and so whether it's an academic center or a private institution they are they are employees and so part of that expense is of course paying for this moc so you can imagine you know you're you could shave potentially tens of millions of dollars off your, off your fees that you're paying for your organization per year. I mean, just by, by having the, a different accreditation pro- process when it comes to, so let's say someone's listening they say, wow, okay, I'm all in, it's time for me to do this, but I got, I've, you know, the hospital probably has bylaws. They have some sort of say, and most of those bylaws say that it has to be an ABMS certified um, certification. So how do they go about fixing that. I mean, it, it, you can't just go and say, Hey, now they've got NCQA and now the insurance companies have to accept this. Do they have confidence that first one, do all the insurance companies accept it yet? Or is this that they will eventually? Uh, and then where they have to, and how do they go about getting things changed in the hospital? So on our website, we actually have materials that physicians can use when they're approaching their credentialing committee. So templated letters, PowerPoint slides, um, and even petitions. Um, so credentialing committees may not listen to one physician, but when there's a list of physicians who are interested in this and they form a petition and they say, these are the reasons why you know you should accept NBPS, it's gonna save the hospital money, it's going to increase patient access to healthcare, it'll mitigate physician burnout. Uh, I mean, the beauty of accepting NBPS it, is it costs nothing. Um, it, it wouldn't cost the hospital any more. Physician, the physician himself will save money. And this was, part of the delivery that we had when we were approaching some of the state legislatures about pro-competition bills, um, that it'll cost the taxpayer nothing to improve patient access to healthcare and reduce healthcare costs. Um, so th- that's the way to go about it. Uh, obviously, some hospitals will be a little reluctant at first, uh, but I often do cite that there's a domino effect a lot of the time. So when one hospital does it, the next hospital will follow suit. 
And uh, many of the payers are actually starting to come on board as well. So uh, Geisinger down in Pennsylvania, their, their insurance system uh, officially recognizes MVPS. They're the first massive uh, insurance carrier that's now accepting MVPS. And you're going to start to see more and more of the payers, the hospitals, everybody kind of moving in this direction. Uh, because again, it, it's cost savings, it's patient access to healthcare, and it's what's better for the healthcare system. Uh, and again, we're, we're not saying that you shouldn't accept ABMS, but physicians should certainly have a choice. Yeah, just allowing, just allowing another choice for physicians. And, and then how do you how do you convince insurance companies? Because, you know, in the state of Michigan here, we're about 70% dominance by Blue Cross Blue Shield. So they're pretty much whatever they do, everyone's going to do. I mean, we have strangely no very little penetration from Aetna, um, which is probably a good thing. But anyway... Uh, how do you get them to, to come along? Because what you get, if you're a physician, you're going to go to the hospital credentialing board and say, hey, we got this new thing, that, this new credentialing. They're going to say, great, sounds, we'll save our hospitals, have lots of money, but guess what? There's no point us doing this because, of course, the insurance, they're not going to get paid if they, with the insurance carrier. So how do you, I, they're not going to accept until the insurance companies, are the insurance, are the insurance companies really the first step for most stocks, you think? It is. And I mean, the nice thing is that uh, Medicare and Medicaid, who oftentimes the payers turn to for guidance, they do not require maintenance of certification from the ABMS. So they, they don't require any certification, believe it or not. Um, so the nice thing is we don't have that hurdle to deal with. And, and the blues, I think it's just going to take some time. Um, you know, when, when there's new guidance from URAC and NCQA, that's what it is. And, and I think as more and more blues understand that there's really no risk to them. Um, Because again, if it doesn't benefit them, the other side of the coin is, is this going to cause any risk? Um, And again, this is really a no risk proposition. And the thing that hospitals and insurance companies and all these stakeholders like to claim is, yes, all of our doctors are board certified. By recertifying with NCQA, they'll be able to continue to say that because again, that's kind of the language that the public is used to. That's the language that these credentials are used to. And again, it's just a matter of choice. I'm not sure if you you heard, but there's actually a third entity that does board certification, and that's the AOA or the American Osteopathic Association. So they do the board certification for uh, osteopathic doctors or DOs. Now, recently, uh, it's very interesting, the ABMS and the ACGME, which is the group that uh, controls uh, residencies, they kind of agreed behind closed doors that all program directors should be MOC compliant. Uh, which obviously angered the American Osteopathic Association because their doctors um, recertify with them. And so they were kind of getting excluded from the picture. So the ABMS was further uh, building on their own monopoly. And there's an ongoing lawsuit between the AOA and the ABMS on this very picture. So even within the certification recertification space, the ABMS is continuing to kind of flex its muscle and try to be the only game in town, uh, which over and over again, whether it's the American Medical Association, which you probably know, has issued many, many resolutions stating that board certification should not be a requirement to practice medicine. And even the Department of Justice issued a white paper stating that uh, the complete and utter lack of competition in the board recertification space actually hurts the healthcare system and really stunts innovation. Um, so really, the, the only party here that stands by saying we need to keep the ABMS in the only, as the only game in town is the ABMS. Right. Yeah. yeah we can't, they have no conflict of interest, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. Uh, so you're the director of legislative affairs. What does that mean? I mean, I know in, in the state of Michigan, we passed some legisl- We got some legislation passed over a number of years. My friend, Dr. Ederson, who's on a few episodes ago, uh, she was instrumental in getting that pushed through the state um, with a lot of other physicians and our state medical society's help. 
and it's been semi-successful, but again, we had no competing, uh, you know, uh, certification board. So we had, we could, we could basically say that they couldn't base licensure on maintenance certification, which I know some, which was one of the things that was trying to be pushed by ABMS throughout the country. And so we prevented that, but we haven't been able to take, make too much strides beyond that. Although maybe we don't need to at this point. What do you, what is your role in the, and the NBPS with the um, with the legislation. I mean, obviously, you're working on this NCQA and the URAC, <laughs> all these acronyms for people. But uh, you've been working on that, and so has that been sort of your main guideline? Or are you now going to go to the state and federal levels to try and fix some other things? So we we initially went to the state because you know there were a lot of problems with getting anything done. Uh, the insurance companies that we dis- as we had discussed had no interest in changing anything because again they had nothing to gain from changing right. the system. Uh, unfortunately, many of our physician societies were selling the modules that we were required to complete in order to complain with maintenance, uh, in order to comply with maintenance and certification. And people don't realize this also millions of dollars in grants were actually given from the American Board of Medical Specialties and their their sub uh, boards to these physician societies in the form of educational grants. So when someone is paying you money in the form of grants, and then you are selling modules to kind of feed into that system, there's a lot of money going on. Uh, And then the other issue is that the senior leadership of the ABMS was oftentimes on very friendly terms with the senior leadership of a lot of these physician societies. So you had the hospital administrators who said, well, we can't change anything because of insurance. You have the insurance company saying, well, we have no reason to change anything. And then finally, you have the physician societies, which is supposed to be our rallying point with, with which we work through them to get policy changed, had no reason to change anything because they were making a tidy buck as well. So when all of these forces are against you, you then turn to the legislature and say, this is a monopoly and any other means of changing the situation is being upended because of uh, conflicts of interest. So our initial strategy was to go to the state legislatures and get laws passed to try to change the system. And you know, there's been a lot of mixed results. As you mentioned, there is no state in the United States that requires maintenance of certification with the American Board of Medical Specialties to have a license. Unfortunately, if you are not fulfilling maintenance of certification in the vast majority of cases, uh, you cannot be credentialed with insurance companies or with hospitals. So essentially, here's your license. You can't really practice with it right. because no one's going to reimburse you. So with all that being said, you know some of the weaker bills that were passed in states said, yes, you, you don't have to be board certified for a license. And we said, yeah, great. Thank you. Um, but it, but some of the other states, it, the wording was a little bit stronger. Uh, one of them, for example, in Texas said that uh, board certification cannot be required of any hospital of the physician membership unless there is a vote, a majority vote from the entire medical staff to make that required. Um, so as you can imagine, what medical staff would vote and say, no, no, the ABMS should be the only board that we will accept. Uh, you know, unfortunately, with that, you know, it, it all sounded great, but two issues came up. First of all, the hospital said, well, this vote was taken before this law came into uh, effect, which, you know, kind of sank things temporarily. And then the other more disheartening issue that came up is when physicians complained to us that, oh, te- you know, our hospital's not respecting this. We said, okay, great. We wrote to the attorney general of Texas and said, hey, listen, this is the issue. And the attorney general's office said, well, NBPS, you have no standing in the state of Texas. Right. Yeah. Uh, so you really yeah. can't file a complaint. The only person that can file a complaint would be a Texas physician uh, who has been harmed by this hospital not following the law. And as you can imagine, um, there aren't too many physicians who are eager to put their necks on the line to be that guy 
uh, who, who is now challenging the hospital based on that state law. Um, so we, we've said it over and over again, uh, we'd be more than happy to back up any Texas physician who wishes to challenge the law. Uh, because again, the law is on the books, it was signed into law by the governor, uh, and the fact that it's kind of being ignored by the hospitals is inappropriate. Uh, but again, we, we would take more action if we could, uh, but it is what it is. So as you can see, it's kind of a mixed bag with state laws. And we realized to get this done in 50 states uh, would be incredibly challenging. And again, I've testified in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, uh, Vermont, kind of all over the place, not Vermont, sorry, uh, um, Rhode Island, but a number of states. And I got the same sense because the ABMS would bring in their kind of high powered lobbyists. They'd show up on days where I wasn't available they kind of give messages like, well, the legislature need not get involved in physician business. The physicians and the hospitals can sort this out and given all kinds of you know, ridiculous things. Another one that they would often sell is, hey, listen, if, if your physician's not board certified and they're sued, how will that look in court? And my response has been, hey, listen, no matter what piece of paper is hanging on your wall, it doesn't matter. <laughs> if you are negligent, whether you're a physician, a firefighter, a police officer, you know, no piece of paper on the wall is gonna protect you from litigation. And the same thing is here. I mean, I've never seen a malpractice case where, you know, someone acted very negligently and the boards came running in saying, nope, he's board certified, throw the case out. <laughs> um, so, you know, that, that kind of nonsense argument comes out. And again, uh, you know, I, I can't blame the legislature in some ways because they don't really understand the system. So when a high powered lobbyist coming from this golden organization that's been around forever and is untarnished in their eyes comes and tells you this, they, they're not going to vote in favor of the bill. Um, but again, then I show up and kind of tell them, hey, listen, here's the real deal. Um, and we've made some progress. We've gotten some bills out of committee. We've gotten some bills passed, not not the strongest bills we wanted. Uh, but fortunately, you know, our, our strategy was two tiered where there's the legislative arm and then there was kind of this other arm that worked from the backside and really worked with the NCQA and URAC and the insurance companies and kind of got things through that way. So I think out of the two, you know, the second strategy with URAC and NCQA is going to pan out being the one that's going to make more national waves. And I believe it's going to be a game changer as more and more hospitals, and insurance companies realize, yeah, this is not an alternative board, an equivalent board. And that's the thing we stress that all physicians should be able to practice medicine based on having an active license, passing their initial exam, doing relevant CME, um, and just doing the things they do to be a good doctor. Um, I will say that one thing that sets NBPS apart from all the other boards is that when people send us their CME certificates, there's not a checkbox saying, oh, uh, I attest that I've done these things. We actually go through the certificates and make sure that the subject matter is relevant to the subject in which they are recertifying. So for example, someone who is a cardiologist could take some CME in, I don't know, joint disease or something that has nothing to do with cardiology and then try to claim those credits as, okay, I'm using these credits to recertify in cardiology. Although they might've passed the exam and done a bunch of other things related to cardiology, uh, the CME is never really scrutinized. While with NBPS, we really scrutinize the CME to make sure it's relevant to the subspecialty or specialty to which the physician's applying for recertification. One of the things that, that has come up that it's surprising to me, and I, I don't quite understand, maybe you could shed some light on it, is the, the selling of data for physicians. And, I, and I've been told that one of the reasons the hospitals like ABMS certification is in part because they get all this extra data from the ABMS. What exactly are they selling? I don't understand what my address and my name and my phone number, whatever, I don't, I don't know what value that has, has these organizations uh, and th why, 
I guess, why he was paying for it. So I, I can only guess I, I do have some physician colleagues who have really been pushing back on this because they say, I, I don't want to give my patient data, even if it's de-identified to this organization with questionable motive. Uh, some things I could guess is tiering of physicians. Okay, this doctor who's practicing this specialty is spending this much more money on testing and all these other things. Uh, this other doctor is spending less money. These are some prescribing habits. So, I, I mean, just like everything um, that, that we see in the world, data mining occurs and it can help with strategy in terms of making better decisions in terms of where we're going to put our assets in terms of maximizing profits regardless of how it impacts patient care. Uh, so I'm, I'm assuming that some of this data does go into that kind of dark, shady region of medicine uh, where it's making decisions without really concern of what's best for the patients, what the doctors think, but rather what's going to maximize profits. And uh, I'm sure the audience, after listening to your program for some time, understands a lot of their healthcare dollars are not paying for the physician. They're not paying for the nurse. They're not even paying for the medication. Uh, they are paying the shareholders of many of these insurance companies, the shareholders of some of these hospital corporations. And, uh, you know, this is what happens when the commercial, when medicine becomes commercialized. Uh, they're no longer patients, they're clients. Uh, they're no longer physicians, they're providers or prescribers. And, and this kind of complete annihilation of the art of medicine is being replaced by the economics of medicine. Yeah, the corporatization of things for sure. Where do you see NBPS in the next two years? I mean, I, I imagine at this point, you've kind of got all the things you need, right? So now it's getting the word out. Now it's going to large organizations, insurers, and, and hospital systems. Like, do you go to Kaiser? I mean, you're going to the largest, largest like Mayo. Is that is that where you're hitting first? Because I guess I would say, too, to, to my audience who's not aware, that the board is all volunteer, for one thing, which makes it a little unusual. But that there are these are not just random guys like me. This is like, these are people who are credentialed who are in academic positions all over the country, Harvard, Mayo, Scripps, I mean, all over at Cleveland Clinic. So these are not, you know, associate assistant clinical professors. These are actually, you know, full professors and stuff. So anyway, so it's a, very, it's a legitimate organization with legitimate people and they carry some clout. So how are you going to, about fixing those problems, going to other hospitals? Because I imagine that's where your energy is going to be moving at this point. Yeah, exactly. And, and um, th thank you for bringing that up. Um, we are all volunteers. Um, so, you know, one concern that people have is, oh, well, what about when your organization gets bigger and people start collecting huge salaries? I'm like, that, that's never changing. Uh, the mission of this organization is that we are volunteers. We are not salaried. And the money that people pay for their certification really pays for two things. Number one, it pays for the office staff, which actually goes through the certificates and make sure that people complete all the things they need to in order to be recertified. It also pays for some of the activities we talked about, uh, talk, lobbying um, both with governmental agencies as well as with insurance carriers and some of the other stakeholders. So, you know, again, to, to your point in a way, as NBPS becomes more and more accepted, people are shocked to hear this, the price of recertification will, will stabilize. We're not gonna be pushing up our rates and it actually may even go down. Sure. Uh, because again, as as we are pushing less and less for acceptance, then you know th that cost will be gone, and you'll start to see the the price either remain neutral or go down, while the ABMS uh, will probably continue to inflate the cost of their product. Well, ever since I heard the story of my friend Dr. Edison, who had to do a module on hand washing to convince her that hand washing was a good idea, and <laughs> she actually had to 
in some ways say that she wasn't washing her hands every time, even though she was, in order to get credit for the activity because you had to show a positive effect from the module. You couldn't say, well, I was washing my hands 100%. I'm still washing my hands 100%. You would not get credit for that. It had to show that you did it and you'd have some sort of positive outcome, which shows you the uh, insane busy work aspect and why docs are tired of this. Like you mentioned, just checking boxes and doing things that provide no patient role. There, there's so many things we do in life that don't help and don't do anything. There's no point doing another thing <laughs> and paying a lot of money to do it too, right? Yeah. And, and you know, I, I hate to bring my brother up again, but I will. So like I said, he's an EP cardiologist. So the audience may not believe this. So he would take an internal medicine exam and then three years later, a cardiology exam. And then three years later, another EP exam. And then guess what? It's time to take yeah, the internal right. medicine exam. So, so literally every two to three years, he was studying to take a standardized exam which again, much of it had nothing to do with his practice. And, and this was the routine. And the other thing that people don't realize is that with a lot of these exams that were being issued, they would the, the failure rates were incredibly high because they actually had an advantage. If they fail more people, those people would have to pay to take another exam. So you just right. see the money continue to cycle. And the other thing you know that, that's not really spoken about much is when these boards would have their meetings, uh, I mean, they would have it at the most lavish resorts. Uh, they would pay not only for the board member, but their spouse, their kids. I mean, limousines. I mean, you name it. No, no expense was withheld. Yeah. Well, you and saw that at the blood expense and sweat of the physicians who were actually doing sure. the work. In yeah. The lines. yeah. And there's, I mean, there was the, the person who had the ABP, they were making seven figures. This is two to three times what an average pre pediatrician makes, for instance. Same thing with ABIM. I mean, they're making, which is even more irritating to someone who's paying a lot of money for people who are not even working probably half as many hours as they are in a week. And they're, you know, I don't know, I, their, their work, I, I'll, I guess I won't comment on how hard their work is or, you know, what they're, but anyway, well, that, you know, the first class airfare and all those sorts of things. And that's irritating. I, I think you and I would agree, Eric, and most physicians would agree. If you leave clinical practice completely to take on an administrative position, especially one like this, that's for a nonprofit, you should make no more than exactly what you would have made in clinical practice, not a dollar more. And many would argue less because you're probably working less. Uh, but to be making, to your point, quadruple, quintuple of what your salary was, it, it's really unjustified. And again, that money's not coming out of thin air. That's coming out of the efforts of your colleagues. Well, for those who are physicians, I, I would call action. I would have you recommend going to mppas.org. That's the website for signing up to be, um, and I'm actually not, but I think I will after this conversation. I'll join the ranks of the 9,600. And it's now time to, to work at the hospital. I tried earlier with the hospital, but my we were we were stopped because, you know, the insurance companies. Um, and I'll have to, that'll be the next thing. I'm on the board of the Med Michigan State Medical Society too, so I'll have to talk to the Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan and work on it that way. And I think that's together we can try and, uh, you know, get this, get this through and get this done to really help physicians, help patients with access to, to medical, good medical care. Cause either way you're board certified, you still finished the initial certification. There's no change except, you know, where you're sending your check. You know, two other things I will mention though, is when, if, and when you do approach your credentialing committee, I would mention two things. Number one, accepting MBPS is a powerful tool for recruitment and retention. Uh, if you practice at our hospital, we accept NBPS, we'd be happy to have you. So that would garner the attention of many physicians in the community that don't work at that hospital. 
uh, and would actually encourage people who are thinking about retirement to say, you know what, uh, if I don't have to do all this nonsense, I'm happy to stay on board. Right. The other thing is many institutions are very much engaged with diversity, inclusion, and equity, uh, which is really an important priority for many hospital systems. And just reinforcing, you know, if you're going to talk the talk, you need to walk the walk. Uh, and clearly when there's an elite group that's not having to do any of these requirements, and then there's another group that has to do all these requirements, why don't we just allow all of our physicians, regardless of age, race, gender, whatever it is, practice medicine by having a license, passing an exam, and then having to maintain the CME. Putting everybody on equal footing is the definition of equality. Um, and for a hospital to say, oh, we're very much into diversity, inclusion, and equity, and then look at something that's so divisive and say, well, we're, we're this way, except when it comes to this topic, really doesn't make sense. And certainly approaching a, a diversity, equity, and inclusion officer, if your hospital has one, may be part of a good strategy to get people to pay attention to this issue. Yeah, great. Well, Dr. Paul Matthew from NBPS, uh, where's a good place for people to follow what you're up to and social media and Twitter? Yeah, no. So, I mean, you, you can go to the NBPS website. Um, there, there's updates there all the time. Uh, on Facebook, uh, there's Practicing Physicians of America. That's a good group. Um, and then uh, Physicians for Patient Protection. That's another one. Uh, Eric, are, are you a member of any of these groups? I have been at times off and on. I, I, with any of these things, I've been a member of a number of them. And then I don't remember if I've renewed my my membership. So it's been a weird two years, right? Yeah. And then one other ask I have of you personally, Eric, and, and any other physicians that are tuned in here, I would say that if you do end up getting certified with the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons, keep in mind two things. First of all, you shouldn't wait till your ABMS certification lapses. I have been dual boarded by the ABMS and the NBPS for the past six years. Uh, I didn't wait till my board certification lapsed because I knew, you know, this is a very good thing. At the very least, it's kind of like a PAC donation where you're contributing to see change happen. So that's number one. Number two, once you do recertify with us, please add D-N-B-P-A-S after your MD or your DO. So that stands for Diplomate of the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons. So that's a good idea for a number of reasons. Number one, brand recognition is in incredibly important. And as we have more and more physicians putting DNBPS after their MD or DO, it just raises awareness that yes, this is a legitimate equivalent board. We're trying not to use the word alternative because alternative implies lesser when in fact we are on equal footing with the AOA and the ABMS. And I'll just remind colleagues, oh, DNBPS, you're a diplomat of that board. Maybe I should think about it too. And obviously having some letters after your name tells your patients as well. Oh, this guy's up to date. He's he's board certified. You know, I can I can trust his care because at the end of the day, that's what board certification should be. It should be assigned to the public and to patients that you've gone through the rigorous training that physicians go through, and that you're going to provide them with top quality care. Well, thanks so much. Have a great evening, and uh, I hope we were successful in getting more people signed up. Yeah, thank you so much, Eric. Thanks for listening to the paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.